ideal weapon. Don't forgive the phrase. If ten Gramsleys were allowed to contaminate a city, that city is a morgue in four hours. Once released, it will multiply the power beyond our calculation. It perhaps will never die. To this verse, we have given a highly unscientific name, but one which describes it perfectly. The Satan Month. Welcome to Now Playing's review of The Satan Bug. Trapper in Alaska, the peasant from the Yangtze, the aborigine in Australia, dead. All dead because I crushed the flask and exposed a green-colored liquid to the air. Part of the Now Playing Viral Outbreak movie review series. Nothing, nothing can stop the Satan Bug. Hosted by Jacob. We have a job for you. We think you're the right man. Stuart. You rate rather high on insubordination. And Arnie. They are very brilliant, some of them. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. You know, your language hasn't improved a bit, by the way. You need a wife's influence. Listener discretion is advised. Sit down. There's no reason why you shouldn't hear this. Today we're discussing... The Satan Bug, starring George Maharis, Richard Basart, Anne Francis, and Dana Andrews, directed by John Sturgis. This is your extreme podcasting messiah, Arnie. And Stuart. And this is Jacob, the co-host who likes green pepper burritos and cold Mexican beer. Guess which brand? Corona! Corona! <laughs> I know, that joke's been done a million times. Has it? I haven't heard it. I laughed. I, it was pretty good. <laughs> Anyway, I, I'm not on the internet. I, like, I, I, I miss all of the memes. <laughs> Just like the 60s. You know, a, not a bad decade to be if you want to avoid outbreaks. It actually was pretty good news. Polio had been licked. The World Health Organization was aggressively going after smallpox. They started in a campaign in 1966, and a decade later, it was eradicated. It's just gone from the world. Measles were kind of a thing, but measles aren't going to kill you. Measles aren't going to leave you unable to walk or blind or kill your children, scar your face. I think there's still some controversy about, like, whether to get the vaccine, but I, I think that even if you choose not to, it's usually not, in large numbers, lethal. Now, I think the biggest thing, and it wasn't until the late 60s, was probably war protests. But when I think 60s, I think happiness, hippies, and free love, right? When the sexual revolution created its own problems, right, with disease and STDs. We'll talk about that next week. I think the 70s and the 80s will have the fallout of that decision. But yes, by and large, if you were thinking about problems in the 60s, it was the war and it was specifically nuclear panic. I do think that that fear overrided our sense that we were going to be wiped out by diseases. But it, it went hand in hand. With the Cold War, there was the feeling that in the 60s, at least, it was legal for any country to develop bioweapons. And they were. I mean, I did a little bit of research about this. And of course, bioweapons have existed as long as mankind and you know we gave indians blankets and they got disease i mean it's happened for centuries but fun fact i did not know the japanese were about to spread plague in san diego right before we dropped the h-bomb on them really 
That was a thing in 1945. Yep. Operation Falling Lotus or something like that, or, or Cherry Blossom or something like that. Falling Cherry Blossom. It sounds so pretty. <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds pretty. But again, there were, it was something that was in the public conscience in the 40s. They used it. D-Day, apparently. There was a release of Plague and Japan did it to China. Like, we don't think of it because, you know, obviously the H-bomb is the H-bomb. That's the fear you go to. I'm a child of the 80s. We worried about nuclear war but bioweapons was up until 1972 a very viable way for countries to hurt one another and the problem is obvious right like it's great if you could specifically design the disease to only hurt the people that you want to get hurt but pandora's box once it's out there it's going to come back right around and get you and I also think, you know, just ethically speaking, it's one thing to attack soldiers. You know, you can release anthrax on, on the battlefield and, okay, you know, maybe you can justify that the soldier signed up for that. But when you're dropping it on cities, children, civilians at home, like, yeah, at a certain point, people asked the Geneva Convention to be revised, the rules of war to be looked at. And by 1972, Nixon, 177 countries all said, we're not going to do that anymore. Terrorists still do bioterrorism, but countries, by and large, do not. And I do feel like that's a difference between what we talked about last week with Panic in the Street and what we're going to talk about today. You know, we all went through 9-11. You remember the anthrax scare. That was scary, like just white powder showing up in the mail. You didn't know who was going to get it, it how it was going to spread. But I feel like... Again, with something that a human carries, uh, like a virus, where you just get sick, like what we're going through today, like where I worked, they didn't shut down right away. Like I had to keep going to work even after the schools closed. And my wife started to treat me like with suspicion. She like, I had to come home, all my clothes straight into the washing machine, get right into the shower, like a full decontamination routine because we do have a child with an autoimmune disease. And like, she's just starting to become suspect of everyone because the data shows that perhaps they have a higher rate of death if they get COVID-19. So I do feel like when we're coughing and something spreading that way, it, we're suspicious of everyone. When it was anthrax it was like i don't know there's terrorists like i wasn't looking at the person next to me worrying that they were going to kill me and maybe i'm paranoid but even though there's the geneva convention don't you believe the government's still working on a super flu i mean when the stand when i read it and when the movie came out in 94 i was just like yes i fully believe that this is going on and if you ask me today hell when i heard Corona came out of China. I was like, did they engineer it? I, it took me a while to learn about the bat. Well, you know, you can join us on Friday. We're covering Dr. Strangelove, and we can discuss whether what countries say they're doing publicly and what they're doing privately and how that can create problems. But I will take most countries at their word. When they're thinking about attacking each other, they're not thinking about, yeah, dropping plague, anthrax, smallpox. They're not trying to hurt civilians. That's not the idea. Is that naive of me? I mean, I do think that you can have economic wars. There's lots of ways to attack a society without needing to go to something that, again, once it's out of the box, could eventually come around and get you. I mean, I don't think it's helpful to spread contagion because contagion is not aligned with a particular political belief, nationality, country. You know what I was thinking of when watching The Satan Bug? We discussed the plague movies that we've reviewed in the past, but I didn't consider viral agents to be there. I mean, you're talking about what if it gets out? All I'm thinking is, 
Well, we just need Bellerophon to stop Chimera from Mission Impossible 2. I didn't have that in our list last time because I didn't consider that an outbreak when Tandy Newton was going to jump in the water and poison the world because they had Bellerophon. But of course it is, and and you bring up an excellent point. This was definitely a plot point in 60s spy fiction. If you watched a movie, Man from Uncle, or read a pulp novel, I think that it would be there. I'm not sure how much the threat was actually real. I don't know about how many... I mean, I guess that's the point. We wouldn't necessarily know what countries had done to infect each other. Maybe someone is behind measles. I guess a paranoid would outline for me all the crazy outbreaks and how they're connected with political plots. But from the outside, it feels mostly like the stuff of spy fiction. And that's exactly what Satan Bug is. We are seeing an adaptation of a popular novelist, the Tom Clancy of the 60s, if you were, Alistair MacLean. Do you guys know him? I don't know him. I was thinking Clancy, but yeah, I don't know this writer. Nope. Guns of Navarone is the most popular book and adaptation of his work. Oh yeah, I know the Guns of Navarone. I mean, I've heard of it. I haven't read it. I saw that movie years ago. Yeah. I mean, it would have been the kickoff to why they suddenly made everything uh, that he had ever written into a movie for a while. He was definitely a writer that was in vogue in the 60s. Oddly enough, Satan Bug is his Richard Bachman novel. He wrote it under a pseudonym. He had gotten to the point where he felt like, can I not use my name and still be celebrated with a bestseller? And so they did publish it as an Ian Stewart novel for a little while before they came clean and... I don't think it was too long before it was published as Alistair McLean, but he he wanted to see if he could still sell books. I think his book publishers still promoted it like he was a Alistair McLean novel, and thus it did sell well. They did hype it up, and, and it did well. And this movie was the first movie made from his work since Guns of Navarone, which was a big hit movie of 1961, but different because it is about bioweapons terrorism and, and such. I mean, that kind of subject matter. He talks about war a lot. He talks about the sea, but he doesn't really go with science so much. The idea that we're talking about viral outbreaks would have been another reason to publish under a pseudonym. It's not the same audience. I read it. It feels much more like an Agatha Christie novel. There's two big differences between what we're here to talk about on the movie screen and what was in the book. The writer is Scottish, and he said it in England, and he based the compound on an actual Scottish lab that existed since 1917 that created biowarfare. And it was mostly about there's these deaths at this lab who done it? You had all these suspects and you were constantly questioning their motives and who gave this guy poison butterscotch. I mean, there was just a long time to think about who the criminal was. And it really wasn't until the last 80 pages that you knew. And that's consequently when the book also kind of fell apart. Once I figured out what was going on, I was like, oh, this is terrible. It became a very bad James Bond plot in which yeah, there's mute henchmen with the strength of gorillas, and the main villain <laughs> is a Italian-American mobster who's using the Satan bug to evacuate London so he can rob all the London banks. Like, that's what it really was, all of this big heist plot. <laughs> and so, yeah, it just um, it got away from what I, I was looking for, which was, again, the threat that someone had invented a virus that was so contagious and deadly that it could wipe out all life on Earth. That goes away. But big hit, this was actually adapted 
to a screenplay format by Ed Anhalt, who had a hand in writing Panic in the Streets. He actually is the only carryover from the movie of last week. He wrote that movie, or at least an early draft of it, and he came in here, adapted the book, and then it got a rewrite by James Clavell, who was mostly known for pinning the novel and TV miniseries of Shogun. Was this expected to be big? Because... This director, I know him, John Sturgis. I've seen The Great Escape. I've seen The Magnificent Seven. This seems like a pretty notable director to get for this. Yeah, I definitely think that MGM was very proud of the movies he had been making for the past decade. Yeah, Magnificent Seven and Great Escape were the big ones. He was supposed to do Ocean's Eleven, the one that had the Rat Pack. He didn't like Sinatra's. So he said, I'm not going to do it. But he wanted to do a heist movie. And this is kind of a heist movie. So that was his attraction. It also explains the animated opening credits. <laughs> yeah. And, well, that was the 60s thing. Sal Bass <laughs> inspired animated credits were all the rage in the 60s. And so Sturgis was signed to a three-picture deal. This was the first one of that. He was expected to crank out a hit because that's what he was doing after Great Escape. If he could see those guys escape from a POW camp, he could definitely tell the story about breaking into a bioweapons lab. But to hear people tell it on set, they didn't have enough money. And Sturgis' attention was on other movie projects. He was thinking about his second and his third movie. Not so much this script. They only did one or two takes and the budget got as small as like under $2 million by the end. Yeah, I was wondering how this was received because what's interesting is, you know, go to the Wikipedia page for Panic on the Street and it's got all this stuff about the reception and what critics thought. The Wikipedia entry for Satan Bug kind of just ends after it lists the plot and the actors in it. Nothing about what people thought of this, what critics said. It's not there. Was this popular at the time? I mean, was was it a hit? No, it was not a hit. And Pauline Kael, which I, you know, I don't know how big she was. People love Pauline Kael reviews. I don't know that America was reading them, but New Yorkers enjoyed her cantankerous way. She called Satan Bug the worst film that she ever saw. An overstatement for sure, but it was pretty much critically panned and yeah, did not make great escape money. And was quickly forgotten. I think forgotten was really what it was. They had used less money than they needed, TV actors instead of movie actors. He wanted to get his friend Steve McQueen in it, who was the biggest actor of that era. They couldn't afford to pay him. They didn't have the money to get Steve McQueen on screen, so you get this guy from a TV show instead. And Chuck Heston was approached. He was like, now nah, I'm going to wait for Omega Man. Like, just everyone else had something better to do because... As popular as this novel was, ultimately, it wasn't a priority. I think everyone sensed that it was just kind of a pulpy movie spy James Bond ripoff. And James Bond was a thing by this point. When they were filming it, Goldfinger came out. They weren't ripping that one off specifically, but there had already been Dr. No. There had already been From Russia with Love. And of course, all the Ian Fleming books had been written. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, you watch this, you could put Sean Connery in here, Roger Moore, whoever, put a Bond in here. It becomes a Bond film. It, it feels like it would fit into that era. Absolutely, yeah. Please, yeah, please put Roger Moore in there. <laughs> that, that's a sad state when you're begging for <laughs> Roger Moore. I was. So why don't we get into the plot, Arnie? Tell them what the Satan Bug does. The U.S. government is secretly creating chemical and biological weapons. The man in charge of these experiments is Dr. Baxter, and he's created a bioweapon so awful they don't even have a scientific name for it. <laughs> Are you telling me Satan Bug isn't scientific <laughs> enough for you? It is not. I thought that was Latin. <laughs> Satanus Bugus? <laughs> Yeah, Satanus Simex is what it should be. But no, they just call it the Satan Bug. 
It spread so fast that if it was released, it could wipe out all life on Earth in a couple of months. So there's cause to worry when Dr. Baxter is found killed and his vial of the Satan bug is missing, as are some vials of the deadly but less contagious Boculitis. Brought in to find the murderer and retrieve the vials is private investigator Lee Barrett, played by George Meharis, and his former flame Anne, played by Anne Francis. They're aided by station scientist Dr. Hoffman, played by Richard Basart, and General Williams, played by Dana Andrews. The thief sends a telegram demanding the bioweapon research facility, known as Station 3, be destroyed or he will release the Satan bug. And to prove his intent, he releases the boculitis in Florida. Another vial is set to go off in Los Angeles. Lee and Ann find the vials but are taken hostage by some goons. Veretti, played by Ed Asner, and Donald, played by Frank Sutton, who I don't know. Oh, they're both from sitcoms. Uh, he was on Gomer Pyle. He was always giving Gomer a hard time. And Ed Asner, of course, married Tyler Moore. True. I haven't seen Gomer Pyle in 30 years. <laughs> Lee escapes and is rescued by Hoffman, but Lee has discovered Hoffman is actually the terrorist. The real Dr. Hoffman was killed, and this man is Charles Reynolds Ainsley. Ainsley reveals Baxter had created a vaccine against the Satan bug, and Ainsley's injected himself with it, so if the Satan bug is released, everybody may die, but Ainsley will survive. He's the Omega Man! He'll finally have time to read all those books. <laughs> Ainsley and Lee are at a stalemate while Ainsley holds the vial, and they take a chopper above Los Angeles where Ainsley intends to drop the vial. Meanwhile, on the ground, a doodle by the now-captured Varelli told Anne where the Los Angeles virus was in a baseball stadium, and they disarm it. But back up in the air, Lee gets the vial, and defeated, Ainsley leaps from the chopper to his death. The Satan bug is returned to the U.S. military, and everybody's happy about that, as credits roll. Right. And as they start, we go to the high-tech lab, which is always kind of a fun thing. I read the book, and they made it seem like this sprawling complex. And again, it had a historical truth to it. I was interested to see how they were going to visualize it in this film. It's so high-tech that they have the sliding doors from grocery stores here. It's amazing. <laughs> I would say take a shot every time a sliding door opens in this film, but you will be dead. <laughs> like, I feel like they were really proud of this set because, man, I just noticed a lot of doors opening and closing. Yeah, it's well art-directed in a campy way. Like, I'm laughing at the idea. Like, these are people that have no idea how science works, but they're going to design a lab for color coordination and just like aesthetic beauty. And so it's just this silly artifice, this ridiculous notion about what a bioweapons tech lab would look like. Well, the theme song for this is written by Jerry Goldsmith, and he did a lot of work in Star Trek. And when I see that computer room and the <laughs> lab and things, I'm like, yeah, this is just pretty much what Star Trek did. A whole bunch of panels with lights and a whole bunch of switches flipping. The sophistication of computers and of people's understanding of computers just was not there. I did like the outside shot, though, with the little ramp that led down to Station E. I don't know if either of you thought this, but that is the exact same entrance that was, like, in King Kong Lives. Remember they took the little ramp down to the door to get into the station where Mrs. Kong was kept? Yeah, now that you mention it, I haven't thought about King Kong Lives since we recorded <laughs> that review, but yes, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, do, I don't remember that movie, period. I just saw it. But it's the same entranceway, because I, I just always found that so odd that there was a, like, a slope to go down into the lab, and that they have it here so i found that interesting 
makes me wonder if that's a practical place, like somewhere around Los Angeles. No, that's out in Joshua Tree, which is a national park. So I'm, I'm guessing this is all a set. It's all a set. Yeah, they they just constructed it because, again, it looked like what the art director felt like a top secret base would. I've got to ask, though, if you were going to design a lab where you have the most poisonous virus ever designed, wouldn't you do better than like a glass vial with a rubber stopper just sitting on the table like... You don't need burglars. Like, Butterfingers will just, like, kill the end of the world. Yeah, don't make it glass. No, seriously, that needs to be plastic. That guy needs to be wearing some kind of hazmat suit. I mean, if he knocks it over, he's very tired. You know, he says that, and somebody says tired people make mistakes, and he could knock that over. He could drop it. I mean... There's so many ways this could go so wrong. So I'm disappointed. I'm just going to put it out there as someone that is more familiar with Andromeda Strain and Michael Crichton, who always was nerdy enough to care about getting the science pretty much right. I mean, you know, he would embellish like all fictional storytellers. But like, I felt like he was mostly coming at it through the prism of research. This movie feels ignorant right from the get go. And again, it's just a magic bug that's going to be explained that it can just can kill anything. We don't know how it multiplies. Is it airborne? How does it travel? What does it actually do to you? You know, you open the vial and everyone falls over. You know, my favorite moment of the whole movie is in this opening scene, though, because I did not expect to see James Hong from Blade Runner working in this lab. James Hong, you know, you want I? That guy? Yeah, that's, I think, why they don't actually put him on the suspects list. When people turn up dead, they're like, oh, he couldn't be the killer. He just does I. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that guy, it made me really realize, and this hurt to say, so much more time has passed between Blade Runner and now than passed between Satan Bug and Blade Runner. I mean, that's only 17 years apart. Of course, James Hong would still be working. Of course. And it was fun to spot him here. There is some fun cameos going on along here. I did recognize a few folks. How can you not? There are so many characters. You're saying this is based off a book. Do they edit anything? (laughs) Because that's going to be a major barrier for me. Like, usually I complain, like, no one gets named in this movie. How am I supposed to know? Everyone gets named here. There are too many names. There are too many people. Like, I have a hard time keeping track. Like, Regan. I thought Regan was going to be the hero of this movie, but he dies pretty quickly in this film, even though so much time is spent with him at the beginning. In addition, I couldn't even tell some of them apart. They all dress the same. They all look the same. Bunch of old white guys. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the book is very much, like I said, think of a drawing room murder mystery. It starts with the private eye being asked to come to a crime scene. The murder has already happened. They've made the choice, first of all, to move it to a new location. It's no longer in Scotland. They've given a whole new cast of characters with new names. But you're meeting them and you're watching the crime take place before we meet the private eye. So that is confusing. I think it is easier in a whodunit to meet suspects one at a time where you can process who they are as opposed to, yeah, literally about 12 people pass along the frame. And we never see the murders. Most frustrating of all, yeah, we see Ed Asner pop out of a crate, but we really don't see blood. We don't know what is done. They're so timid about showing on-screen violence that I think you kind of miss what's supposed to be happening here. 
Yeah, it's not not only on-screen violence. When we find out Baxter's dead, we don't see the body, do we? I don't remember seeing a body. We're just told that. No, he's behind a table. The agent, Lee, just looks down, looks horrified. I'm like, what did he see? He saw a body. We'll never see a body, but he saw a body. Right, and again, the, one of the scientists says, well, they know that he was poisoned by the botulitis because they had a technician that died of it last month. I'm like, unsafe lab! <laughs> But did he get rid of their wrinkles? Is that how they know they died of botulism? Isn't that what women inject in their face? Botulism was a bioweapon. It was something that is very lethal and concentrated amounts. It is now a cosmetic solution. If you are worried about the lines in your face, you inject botulism in it when you Botox. It is basically killing nerves and causing the creases to soften. And I shouldn't be sexist. Men do it too. I know that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Believe me. Turn on the television. All of those soap stars. (laughs) And people in our daily lives. It should be said. It's a very common practice now. But it is funny to think that a bioweapon of the 1960s is now uh, an everyday, like, blemish treatment. So, all right. Frustrating murder mystery. And again, I will argue this movie doesn't really follow the murder mystery format. It's much more in the swinging vibe of the 60s Bond movies. It feels kind of like Dr. No. Back when they were making 007 movies and they didn't know the formula yet, they just kind of were throwing all of these conventions of the spy movie genre up on the screen. And that includes our main character, Lee. Yeah, Lee Barrett, who, again, I thought Bond throughout this film, but I I guess the interesting twist with him is that even though he's ex-intelligence and he's an anti-authoritarian, it feels like someone from the 60s, you know, that hippie movement starting up. He doesn't quite trust the government, even though he keeps working for the government. Yeah, I liked this character in the early scenes where he's introduced and where he appears to be some kind of mercenary being hired to take a biological agent to Europe so that way neither the U.S. or Russia could have it. I'm thinking this might actually be the plot of the movie. I'm as fooled as Lee is in all of this. And I like him in these early scenes. I definitely thought Bond right away. But I'm like, I could do worse than a bad James Bond knockoff. Yeah, and George Maharis would have been known to audiences from TV. There was a show called Route 66 about people that traveled that highway, and he was the star of that show. Oh, yeah, I watched Nick at Night. Okay, yeah, well, he was the star, and so this was his attempt. He was Bruce Willis jumping from moonlighting into his Die Hard, and he didn't have much of a career after this. He did a couple films, but mostly this is a failure to launch. They wanted to make him Sean Connery, and he is George Maharis. Yeah, he's even in like in this jazz club, which the weirdest band. I've never seen a piano, Congo drum, drummer trio. But I'm like, yeah, I wish we could go back to that jazz club some more in this film. Like, But he gets his call just like James Bond, but he's not making any shaken martinis. You know, I feel like with a name like Satan Bug, it should have its own dance craze. Like, it sounds like a dance craze. <laughs> Put your hands on your throat. Da, 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 da. Like, this, like this jazz trio would knock it out of the park. I know they could put together a killer theme song if only they had taken the time to do so. But again, not enough James Bond. We didn't have the naked ladies opening. We had the animation of the the virus thing. I mean, again, it seemed like they were telling us to take this a little bit more science-y, think about the virus, not think of it as a spy adventure. But that's really what it is. Yeah, they failed them because that's the only way I took this throughout the entire film. Yeah, definitely as we get into it, as it becomes more absurd, as, again, we see more and more of the lab and what's going on here. The problem is he's not very suave either. 
this league. Yeah, we're told a lot of things. We're told that he was a helicopter pilot in the war, and at the same time, he was anti-war. Did you guys catch? Because I think they say the line, and it was true in the book, he used to work at this lab three months ago and was fired. Yeah, I got that from it, too. Does it seem like anyone there knows him now? No. no. That's so confusing. <laughs> I, I agree. I'm like, did, is that detail here? Do people understand that? Is that even important? In the book, it was important because, yeah, they the reason why they reached out to him is, A, they thought he was the number one suspect. You're an ex-employee. You're angry. You came back and you killed us. So they looked at him first. Which they try to do in this film. Like, they're going to try to treat him like he's a suspect, that maybe he was involved, but it doesn't ever go anywhere. It never blows up in a big confrontation it's just like mentioned a couple of times but then we'll find out who's really responsible yeah i didn't get the sense that again because he is so clearly sean connery i didn't feel like we could ever really think of him as a suspect i don't know how this is playing to people that didn't have the book in their head it's kind of following that format but feels very confusing yeah very confusing i was wondering why are they pulling this test of trustworthiness on him if he just worked there three months ago? I mean, do they think he turned traitor that fast? I'm really confused as to why they're doing what they're doing. And they retain this, but it gets even more complicated because you realize he wasn't fired. It was a setup to make him look fired so that he could come back and investigate at some point because they knew somebody was doing something nefarious with this Satan bug. Oh, I missed all that then. <laughs> oh, yeah. that This was all part of a ruse of the general when we meet that guy later. And I just feel like, ooh, it's nice to have plot twists that are unexpected, but at a certain point, we want to have a tether to reality. And I just feel like I don't know what's going on. And I read the book. Yeah, I didn't even know it was a book. I'm watching this. All I know is there's a lot of people sitting around, but I'm able to focus my attention on George Maharis. He's the one who I think I'm going to be following through this. Unfortunately, I'm not following him through this enough. He's not the solo hero. He never becomes the James Bond because, as you said, it's a murder mystery. They have to keep all the suspects around for quite a while. Yeah, and again, if, if people just died, like, hours ago, would you really go hunt down a guy on a houseboat that worked there three months ago? Like, that's kind of strange. Like, I'd call the cops first, you know, right? Or just have my own internal security guards. Where are the cameras? Where, where is, <laughs> like, I mean, like, in your high-tech lab, are you telling me that nobody thought to put security? Security cameras anywhere? Maybe that wasn't a thing in 1965, but it's impossible to remember that world now. Yeah, the fact that someone was just able to say, hey, I'm Baxter, I'm going home, bye guys, and it was someone totally different, and like, okay, yeah. <laughs> he held his coat up. You can't see my face. He literally held his trench coat up so you couldn't look at his face. That's not suspicious at all. Sure, go home, Baxter. And a hat and everything. He looks close enough. <laughs> People expected to see Baxter, so they saw Baxter. No, I don't think that's quite how that works. <laughs> Have better protocols at your top secret lab. <laughs> I mean, I get it. It's the mid-60s, because I keep thinking, well, where's the surveillance camera? They don't have them. Where's badge reader access? They don't have it. I mean, I, I get that this is a, a certain point in time, but man, at some point, you just have to hire a security guard that opens his eyes. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, they do have someone at the gate, and I really don't think you let the car through until you've looked the person directly in the face. Like, I just, again, it's all bullshit. But let's see what this heist is. What have they done? One of the first things that Lee determines is that they didn't break in, they broke out. They, like, hid in crates, and those were delivered, and nobody had x-rays, or nobody even wanted to open the crates. And we're told, like, they had to fake all the documentation. Like, we never find out how that's done, right? I guess there's a millionaire behind all of this, so just money made it happen hold all of that yes i yes they were well funded we'll just take it at that these are henchmen that are well funded to do what they're here to do and so they jumped in some crates that got delivered and again this would all blow up in their face if the techs that actually were bringing it in decided hey let's open this box no they wait till monday we can we can we can just go home it's friday night and so they leave these guys in these crates and then they pop out and then one of them gets out of the freezer the botch and throws it at Baxter like he doesn't notice any of that happening while he's in the lab. None of this is shown though, right? I remember seeing a shadowy figure in that room with Baxter. I don't remember seeing a vials thrown. Like again, there's no murder shown. Oh no. No, no, I'm I'm piecing together what people are talking about. Yes, this is the problem with the film. Because this movie is averse to showing us anything. But yes, we this is what they must have done. And then after they've killed him with that botulitis, which again is not the superbug. The Satan bug will spread and kill everything. The botulitis will just kind of kill lots of things. <laughs> I mean, I, again, it sounds lethal enough that you wouldn't want to be throwing it around in, in rooms that are unventilated. Yeah, Florida looks pretty devastated from it in this film. It dissipates in just a few hours versus the Satan bug that doesn't. Yeah, but I, if I were Ed Asner, I wouldn't be throwing it within breathing space. I mean, I think he was really dumb to just use a gun, right? <laughs> just you, You're in there with a gun, shoot him. Then you can grab the six vials that are in the freezer, and then you do your bad trench coat routine to get out of there. And then the other guy, I don't know even know why you put another guy in the other crate, he has to break out of the lab. And this is a moment that's supposed to make Lee, our hero, look intelligent because he's like, oh, see, he pulled the Doberman through the fence. I got real questions about this. Yeah, Arnie, if you had questions about the detective work, like scales on a guy's jacket and panic in the streets, the detective work here is insane. Because they're already inside. When they say that the dog, poor dog, got his head pulled through the fence... And that's why there's cuts on his neck. Well, that means the person's outside the fence. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, wait, how did they get to the outside of the fence? Did the dog chasing them the whole time? And did that second person steal something? To I don't know why there's a second person involved. I think that's the next move in the Satan bug dance is you like take your head and <laughs> smash it against the wall because like none of this makes any, not even kind of makes sense. And again, this guy, it's like he just, he almost should just be walking around reading the script out loud. <laughs> it's just like, well, I know this is happening because that's what it says on this page. I have no idea why any human would conclude from a little nick on the dog that somebody pulled him through that on the outside after they had climbed out of the fence. That's just idiot. I have a second question about the dog. Sure. Okay, so they knocked out the dog. Was there a security guard, a human security guard, who was also knocked out? Because I thought they were talking about a security guard where they go, yeah, he was doing patrol and he got hit on the head and knocked out, but he's a dog, so when he got back up... No, it's just the dog doing patrol. 
His name's Rolo, so they used his name sometimes. Rolo got hit on the head. Okay, I thought that was a human, and I'm like, he's a dog, so he just gets back up. I'm like, that's a bad way to refer to your security team. Okay, it was a literal dog. You have the world-killing plague, but you don't have night security. Got it. (laughs) Well, they do. Again, they're driving around in a Jeep, but they somehow they do not see through the chain link fence. Again, the design of this is just so poor. That's not going to keep a virus out. Anyone can see what's going on. There's nothing top secret about chain link fences. Like anyone could just get in here or out. Again, one dog and three guys that are at the tower that are apparently too busy. I don't know if they're playing Elvis records or what, but they're just not keyed into this job. They're letting people like throw trench coats over their head and call calling them Baxter and not doing their job and checking who's coming in and out of this building. They did at least have the barbed wire. That was up there. That's why they had to cut through the fence and they taped the fence back together. That I thought was ingenious. I'm like, I got to remember, scotch tape a fence together and nobody can tell. (laughs) They also seal off the lab that Baxter was in. It's time locked, like big red lights go on. Was that a normal practice? Like that seems like it should have caught someone's attention. Well, this was like the set decorators like wet dream right like we'll have a door and it like glows red a giant safe door yeah yeah i mean i mean it looks really really cool but at the end of the day what's being argued here is we have this doctor named hoffman who's saying well we have these viruses inside who knows if they're broken if we walk through that door we're releasing the satan bug and everyone dies because our supermarket sliding door is not going to protect us so i'm going to have Barrett, our star Lee Barrett, go in there in a beekeeper uniform, (laughs) and if he emerges not with a lid up, meaning that he still needs to breathe through his suit and not breathing the air that's in the room because it's contaminated, I'm going to have a guy standing at the supermarket door and shooting him. Like, that's still going to let the virus out. No, no, but they're like, it will just be cracked open for a second, so it's safe. (laughs) Yeah, okay, okay. There's a plus and a minus here. The plus is they depressurize the airlock between the safe and the door. So if you open that door for just a second, all air will be sucked in. They do say that. So you can open the door for a second and nothing will escape. I don't trust it. I don't either. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't look like it works that way, but there is a lot of language being used to explain away all of this silliness. And Arnie, you you felt bad for that dog. I feel bad for this hamster that's got to go in (laughs) to test the air. You know, I'm fine with the canary in the coal mine, you know, you got to know. But what I don't understand is Lee puts on this Intel bunny suit, right? It's all white, and he's going in there with the hamster. But then... They say to him, if it's released, he'll be contaminated and he has to stay in there to die. And he's like, I know. Then why wear a suit at all? I mean, like, (laughs) I don't understand how he's contaminated if he's in the bunny suit. Yeah, these are all valid questions and concerns (laughs) that show that we've thought more about this than the people making this movie. Again, the report from the set was that whenever people asked John Sturges what to do, he would tell you what to do in his next film. Like, he wasn't thinking about this film. I think he saw this as a cash grab. If I do this one for the studio, my next one, my comedy western, this is where my dreams lie. And so it feels sloppy. This movie feels incredibly sloppy and self-directed. And there's all these mistakes falling all over the place. And just coverage. Like you said, you just want to see the body. 
did no one film a shot of the body lying on the ground? Is that considered too graphic in 1965 to show a dead body in close-up? We saw it in James Bond. Yeah, I know, I know. It's ridiculous. I mean, I, I'm, I'm asking rhetorically because I know it's not. It just seems like unless this movie was G, they were trying to get a, a child audience in here. I mean, maybe they would be charmed by the hamster, but I don't think there's much here for children. But I just don't understand their phobia about taking this to a dark place. Because you call something Satan bug, a corpse is on the poster, a dead body in the pool. I would think that you would want to load this up with murder, mystery, intrigue. I think the first problem is that it's called the Satan bug. I mean, really, couldn't you at least go different biblical? Couldn't you call it the Armageddon bug or something, the Satan bug? It's like, that's lazy right there. And the movie is as lazy as its title. Yeah, I know when I saw this title, you know, we talked a lot about, okay, we got to pick films that, that are, you know, be sensitive to what people may be going through right now. And I'm like, the Satan bug? Well, that doesn't sound like a serious film. <laughs> well, I thought that it was going to be more serious than it was. I didn't know until I read the book that it was even, I thought it was a heist movie. Again, I thought it was all about what it took to break into a top-secret bioweapons lab, and then, yeah, the rest of the the story would be, how do we get it back before these terrorists uh, use it against us? But this quickly becomes a Palm Springs escape with my wife. <laughs> like This guy likes, like, I'm sorry, I can't be bothered with this murder plot anymore. I've got to run off to some desert hotel where my wife is messaging me. Anne's not his wife, is she? I thought she was just like a girlfriend or ex-girlfriend. No, she is not his wife. She pretends to be his wife right there. And then they talk about how they had a fling I think at Palm Springs, and why didn't we ever do that again? But they are not married. <laughs> she is totally money penny in this. Uh, okay. It seems to me like she's very concerned about their relationship. That doesn't feel fate. Yeah, it's money penny. Yeah, and he, you know, if there were sequels, he'd be off with different women each time. But it said they hooked up. But yeah, she has no last name. They meet her father, but that's not his father-in-law. Okay. It doesn't really even matter. It takes us away from what we thought was going to be a plot about germs. And suddenly, yeah, General Williams is like, ah, yeah, we've been eyeing this lab all along. Who do you think broke in? I already know because I have a telegram. Like, we could have just started here. I don't know why we had to pull dogs through chain link fences and put on suits that may end up getting a shot. If you have a terrorist making a threat, let's start there. Yeah, and again, here's another character coming into the film. Like, I do I care about this character? Or is he going to be like Regan and just die? I don't even know where to center myself at this point. And even if a telegram comes and says, I have the Satan bug... You want to go in there and, like, see with your own eyes that the Satan bug isn't there. Or you want to have a lab that has a camera that could tell you so you wouldn't have to kill a person to find out. But I get what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I said it was the 60s. I Cameras weren't growing on trees back then. But look at that door. <laughs> you gotta have that high-tech sliding door. But all these people are coming in. There's now this telegram. The second telegram of the movie. Because Anne sent a telegram that said meet me at this hotel immediately. And he races there not knowing it's Anne. And then the, get the second telegram that says they have the Satan bug. It's like, Jesus Christ. You know what should have happened is Anne should have come in with Lee to the initial investigation, been there like the Watson to his homes instead of this. She seems like a groupie for most of the movie, really. 
I'd even be cool if she was his wife and had no idea what he did. Like, it might be fun to have an outsider's perspective because, again, you got to have someone there for the audience. Everyone else is talking this techno speak. You want to have the audience understand what's going on. Of course, it's clear by the end of this movie, nobody understands what's going on in the laboratory. But in a better told story, you'd want an outsider who has to have all the science explained to them. That could have been Anne. Yeah, I could have used some of the science explained to me. I mean, I got what the Satan bug was. I got what the botulitis was. Except they don't have any science, ultimately. Yeah, no. Yeah, I mean, the say, you say Satan bug, and that sounds like something Vincent Price would tell you. It doesn't sound like something Michael Crichton would tell you or a scientist would tell you. Again, calling it Satan bug in and of itself. Just, I don't know what's worse, the Satan or the bug. Both of them, <laughs> just it's silly imagery. You say Vincent Price, and now all of a sudden I'm picturing like a little scarab or some actual bug that will kill you they'd call that the satan bug this mm. yeah it's really bad and it doesn't get much better here but they have a chance here all right so we now understand there's a person that is wielding this power who are they and it's kind of a guessing game the general puts to our spy character I mean, it's the 60s, right? It could be communist, right? That would be the obvious thing. A country, a Cold War country would want this power. I was surprised they didn't go there, honestly, because the book had a communist sympathizer as one of the suspects. I think you would always include that in the 60s movie. The fact that it ends up being just a crazy, like, Howard Hughes ripoff that has a messiah complex is bizarre. Okay, that is what it is. He's just crazy, right? Because throughout the film, we'll see a telegram, hey, destroy the lab. And there's a character who's going to have a reveal later who wanted the lab destroyed instead of sending Lee in there to see what's in that time-locked lab. So I'm like, oh, okay, the bad guy just actually, because they're like, it could be someone extremely left or extremely right. It's a very centrist film. It could be anyone. Like, they don't, they don't want to pit it on anyone. So I'm like, okay, well, maybe, you know, it's this whole peace thing, and we actually want to destroy the labs. But no, it ends up just being a crazy guy, right? Like, he just wants to kill everyone? Not just a crazy guy. I think it is Howard Hughes. Let's go back to a place, Arnie. I know you're not anxious to go, but <laughs> think about the aviator, and he was a germaphobe, right? Like, he lived in that bungalow trying to avoid contact with any kind of germs that was known about him at this time. By the 60s, everyone would know that he was this reclusive millionaire. They would have a picture of him. The way that they write this Ainsley character is that no one's ever seen him before. I don't know how you make a billion dollars and never get seen. People knew what Howard Hughes looked like, but they hadn't seen him in a long time. He had let himself go because he wasn't grooming anymore. He had all of his phobias. I think they're taking that popular concept of Howard Hughes and turning him into a Bond villain. This now feels like someone that would live inside a volcano or the Dr. No Island. I wish they would have made that if it was that he was a germaphobe and he just wanted to live by himself. There'd be no germs. Just call that out because it's already a crazy motivation to destroy the Earth. Just like, just because. So that's why he did it is he didn't like germs. So he's going to release... I didn't say that. that. That was Jacob's rewrite, and I'm not saying he's wrong. That's kind of fun. Yeah, if, if you're saying Howard Hughes, then just go that way. We know Hughes has an issue with germs, and that might explain why he has henchmen to do all of this. But of course, we'll find out later. It's not really a great surprise, but one of these scientists at the Section 3 lab is actually Ainsley and has been posing as a scientist all along because, of course germophobic crazy billionaires can do science by day. <laughs> 
And even more crazy. So, okay. So our James Bond goes, all right, let me investigate this. There was one of the many people that we met in the introductory scenes. You're right. It's just milling with nameless scientists. But one of them is Dr. Oster. And he is introduced in the beginning, telling Regan, I've got something to tell you. Come to my place tomorrow. And he didn't say that to Barrett. He didn't say that to our main character. But Barrett is going there the next day. And the guy is dead in the pool and the phone is ringing and he decides to answer it and pretend to be an AV maintenance man. And the killer is like, have you seen Ainsley? Let me leave you a number like that's not traceable. Like, like why would you tell an AV repairman like you're looking for a crazy billionaire that you're working for because you just killed Florida? All of this is like 10 tons of crazy. Yeah, I I really checked out this like i'm like who is this dead guy in the pool just another character i don't know or i don't remember from the 30 characters that showed up at the beginning and now there's a phone call and they're just dropping name like this seems like the laziest writing ever oh it's awful i caught that there was a body in the pool and yeah he was pretending to be maintenance but i missed a lot of this it's just there's so much going on it's so overly complex for reasons i cannot fathom yeah especially hearing it's not really based on the book like they really sounds like they changed a lot up so i can't blame the book on this i guess or whoever adapted it uh 50 50 i mean i feel like it hits a lot of the same beats but you are a bit your hand is being held i did i understood what the story was telling me up until the last 80 pages and then i went whoa what the hell and they did need a rewrite they did need to change things but yeah this is just very confusing again Two different writers. Did James Clavell have his own notions on the book that he undermined the other writer of Panic in the Streets? I don't know. I, I, I just feel like a director, anybody, actors getting their lines would go, you know, this doesn't make sense. It would be the obvious thing to do to fix this, these gaping holes, but you get the sense that nobody cares. You get the sense that this was a rush job and off we go to the next thing. We find out that the person calling coming back from Florida has done the incident. The telegram warned, I'm going to do something to prove that I have the superbug. And so what has happened is it got released. I think it's just the botulitis, though. It's the lower grade poison has been released in the Florida Keys and they get film footage that's this is always kind of scary. I got to say, as someone that is phobic of viruses that, you know, fears plague, it's unnerving to watch footage of people like laying dead, dropping in the streets. Yeah, you were saying, are they afraid to show a body? They show a bunch of bodies here. Good point. Yes, you're right. This is a gruesome scene. I think probably the best scene in the movie. I don't know. The thing is, because they're watching it on a jittery film, it's so I'm watching a movie within a movie. And because there's just cars there, there's no wreckage. It's like, Everybody just stopped their car on the street, got out, choked, and died right there. How fast did this baculitis work? And in the end, I thought it ended up looking like performance art of people just laying in the street. (laughs) It was a flash mob. (laughs) Man, that Radiohead video. I thought the same thing, Arnie. I'm like, wouldn't you just choke and die like behind the wheel and you'd have mass accidents? But no, everyone is able to like stop the school bus. The children (laughs) able to run out and die in the street. Yeah, I I mean, it makes its way to golf courses. Again, how is it being transmitted? Like you'd have to have a super strong breeze to like have everyone drop dead (laughs) in seconds like that. And and again, where does it stop? At what point? I think they said eight hours. So that really could have gotten Florida, Alabama, Arkansas. Who knows? I mean, that could 
have gotten whole states of people killing. Where did you say they dropped it? In the Keys? Well, I say that because it looked like the opening shot in the Super 8 film was that long bridge it takes to go out on the Keys, you know, that 80-mile bridge. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, but that's why I'm like... I didn't feel like you'd want to drop it on an island. We wouldn't have this much carnage on an island with all that, I wouldn't think. But then again, maybe it's more contained, because it wouldn't get off the island. At any rate, it, while effective, it sets up the idea that we really need to be focusing on who the inside man is. If you're convinced, as all of these characters are, that someone aided these two bozos in crates into getting this superbug, then who is it? And unfortunately, I don't feel like for all these characters that have milled in and out, there are any other suspects other than Gregor Hoffman. Like, I don't know who else you would point the finger at. Yeah, I mean, they call him out at the very beginning. Oh, he's an introvert, and he's kind of grumpy, and so it's just the one other character character you pay attention to well that's baxter yeah baxter that was baxter that was the one that got killed that you can't see no they say it about hoffman because hoffman's just sitting there in the lab at the beginning too yeah that's true that's true yeah they're all kind of introverts they're scientists right they're not you know entertainers but yes so i feel like there's no other person to guess here and then all of a sudden all of this noise is given about how he had off screen a flat tire and they go to where he had the flat tire Again, so confused. And I'm like, where's the detective work? All of a sudden, there's a third person they know about. And they know about a flat tire. And oh, he must have stored the poison in the river to keep it cool. They're just wading into a pond at some point and saying, the virus must be here. And it is. That is crazy. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so I have a bug that will kill the whole planet. And I'm going to leave it. In a pond. <laughs> yeah. I think there's some kind of like, it needs to stay cool. Like they do refrigerate it. And I guess they thought the tow truck driver would be looking in his cooler. Like they wouldn't, he wouldn't be able to take in his lunch pail that he had it. I don't know why you stick it into a pond in the desert, by the way, where it's not necessarily <laughs> yes. that cool. But hey, whatever. It means that Donald and Vanetti or Ed Asner and the Gomer Pyle guy pop up as fishermen with guns, and now our spy and his girl are being taken prisoner. And then, like, one of them, Donald calls, like, to get the Hoffman back. They're like, hey, remember you got a fishing trip, right? Like, so, you're right. Sorry, guys. Fuck the Satan bug. Trout are biting. <laughs> I'm out of here. I got gone fishing. What? I, I didn't even catch that. Yeah, yeah. Hoffman is sitting with the other people after our main guy has been captured and taken to Hoffman's house. And Donald calls him and says, hey, you got some uh, uh, fishing plans. Don't you remember we're supposed to go uh, uh, fishing? And he's like, you're right. I should go uh, uh, fishing. It's like it's the most <laughs> obvious lie. And they just let him walk out in part because they know he's guilty. I don't know how long they've known he's guilty. Maybe it would have been helpful to say you're guilty and arrest him. But instead, they're following him home and then letting these people drive our heroes around yeah joshua tree national park yeah there's a whole thing we're gonna follow cars with a helicopter and there's only three ways they might pop out if we lose this movie is weird because they're at times way too much attention given to detail and but when it needs it no attention given to detail what is said by the general, who is the mastermind of this brilliant operation, is they're waiting to be led to Ainsley, this millionaire Howard Hughes, who has never been seen, 
and apparently never been fingerprinted because if you did, you would be able to know that it's Hoffman. And why don't they, why couldn't they have guessed that Hoffman is Ainsley? I don't know. I guess because that's too stupid. But that is the big reveal that's going to happen in just a few minutes. And so Hoffman is allowed to slip from their fingers. And now they split up. Uh, Hoffman has... All right, let's do some math here. I know it's really hard. There are two Satan bug vials. Somehow one of them is in L.A. somewhere. And I don't know who put it there or why, but it's in there somewhere. And then Hoffman has the other one. And then there were four botulitis. One of them blew up in Florida and killed the people in the Keys. And three more are in the lunch pail that the sitcom stars are driving around in. And all of the sudden blowing in is Scotty from Star Trek. Yeah, James Doohan. I looked at the cast list. I had to go back to that scene. He doesn't even speak. But there is James Doohan two years before Scotty. Yeah, he's on Team X-Ray. Like, these guys are (laughs) doing a bang-up job of following the suspect. There's, like, a helicopter flying, like, 50 feet away from them. Nobody would ever notice that. And then there's a car right behind them. And when the car pulls off into a gas station... They have a wreck hitting the brakes. Like, they wreck, and they're like, oh, well, I guess we'll have to go in on foot. This is just Keystone Cops craziness. But the crazy thing is, they're playing it straight. I don't think we're supposed to be laughing. No, they are playing it straight. That's the problem, Stuart. This has become a farce to me. Like, these cops or FBI agents, whatever Team X-Ray is, like, they don't even know how to tail people. No, yeah, they wrecked their car because the suspects that they're following pulled off. Is that why the radio just breaks? I don't know why they can't radio the chief anymore but they run in there the guy has a vial we knew he had a vial he says i'm going to throw the vial they go okay they put him in the room then he throws the vial (laughs) you're just really you guys just shoot him please or yourself you're just so worthless beam him up he's worthless on this planet everybody in this movie seems equally worthless at this point i'm at a loss trying to figure out because they keep adding more characters i'm so lost and they take them away. They throw that vial in and what their plan is to cover it in dirt and set the place on fire to try to kill the germs. But the two x-ray guys just die. I mean, the same vial killed the entire Florida Keys. So why our hero doesn't die, but the other two do, I can't tell you. I have no idea. I can tell you in the book, the gobbledygook scientific explanation that is given is that this virus is attracted to water. So if given the choice of air versus water, it will go to water first. Yeah, they make a big deal about water and there's kerosene mixed in with, I'm like, what is going on? I don't know why they're telling me what the makeup of the water is right now. If it's trying to follow the book, they're trying to say if we splash enough kerosene or liquid on the ground, all of that poison cloud is going to be sucked up into the puddle. But the two worthless red shirts drop dead and now our hero is throwing rocks at Ainsley who just happened to be driving by rather than calling in the general. Yeah, he's just there and happy to pick you up and give you a ride. It's so... He's got a monologue to somebody. All villains need to be able to gloat, (laughs) right? Like, it's a very important thing to do. And then it gets even more crazy. So they drive to some, like, restaurant where two guys with guns are like, ha ha ha, we've caught you. No, it was just a trick. And I'm like, stop with the double crosses. Yeah, way too many double crosses. There are too, too many twists going on here. 
that I can't even, no one even understands what's going on. Don't try to twist it. Try to untwist it. Try to tell us what's going on. Yeah, because I'm confused in the first place. What, who are these two guys that shows up? Are they more secret government agents that were just tailing them? Maybe, who knows? Oh no, now they're on Ainsley's side. Like, the whole time I'm questioning what's going on and I, I can't get into this film because it just, it's going to throw up a big old sliding glass door that's not going to get out of my way when I try to understand it. And worse, this Ainsley was pretending to be Dr. Hoffman. And they're like, well, how'd you get away with it? Nobody asks a renowned scientist what the formula is for salt. No, but don't they ask you to, like, do your job on occasion? <laughs> <laughs> or fingerprints. Again, like, you can just, anybody, I guess you can. Just throw on a trench coat, and this bozo security team will let you walk into a top-secret facility and grab any old Satan bug you want to. But no, he's, like, prestiging this shit. He's been pretending to be Hoffman for years, waiting for the vaccine against the Satan bug, and at no point are they like, so Hoffman, what are you working on? <laughs> and, you know, they didn't even have Windows 3.1 with Solitaire. What would he do all day? <laughs> yeah, if Hoffman has access to this lab, couldn't he have just killed Baxter and taken the stuff? Like, seems a lot cleaner than trying to fake manifest to get shipments sent and choking out dogs. Like, it's so convoluted. It's terrible. I mean, this is just a travesty. Again, with a whodunit, you want to have very clear motivations. You really want to understand every character so that the red herrings do surprise you. When you don't understand anything, that doesn't help a murder mystery. To go, oh, okay, you are the billionaire somehow, and a chopper just comes down. Was that planned? Did he always want to get in a chopper? I don't understand. Yeah, I'm like, is that the FBI coming to arrest him? Oh, no, it's his guy. Like, it's nothing is set up in this film. No, the only chopper we've heard about for half an hour is the one trailing the car. So here comes a chopper. I'm like, it's the rescue whack. Nope. And when did they announce that LA was being evacuated? I feel like all of that like was must have been a, a line of dialogue or something. It was, Stuart. It was a line of dialogue. That is the problem. There's going to be listeners out there that I know like there are answers to all the, there may be a line of dialogue shoved in amongst the 30 characters in this film like that you just you don't get a sense of anything. I get it. There might be a line of dialogue, but you never feel the panic of L.A. You get a cool shot of all the freeways blocked up like I guess some cool map paintings there. But yeah, I, I want to see panic in the streets. Yeah, you definitely want to have a James Bond climax like that's always the villain super plan gets unleashed. It can be outlandish. It can be far-fetched. I'm not knocking this movie because it's unrealistic. Go ahead. Be as crazy and campy as you want to be. It's nonsensical. I, there's a difference. I can't understand why he got inoculated to the Satan bug and what benefit he hopes to get by releasing it. Because he wants to live by himself, I guess. Like, it, it doesn't make sense. You came up with that. I don't think that's ever said. It's a theory. It, it's kind of said, like, he's like, if it's just me, it's just me. I'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like there. you really want to underline that plot. You really want everyone to understand that. I don't understand what he wants. I don't understand what his goal is. I mean, he keeps saying, will you bury the lab? So I think he's... A hippie, right? A, a eco-terrorist hippie who's like, I don't want any more germ warfare research, so bury the lab. 
Uh, that's what I thought, but until he contradicts all that. I'm going with this. This all right. So if he is Howard Hughes and a germaphobe, he really resents that there's a bioweapons lab. He's not willing for the WHO to outlaw them in a few years. So he's going to take matters into his own hand by putting two bozos in crates and coming in there and stealing them. <laughs> and, and again, they could break them at any time. They're, they're throwing them in a, in a lake in Palm Springs. I mean, like, this is terrible. If he's so anti-biological warfare, why would he ex- use them everywhere? Because <laughs> he's a crazy billionaire. Ooh. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Guys, can we talk about my favorite detective work? <laughs> How they find out where the bomb in L.A. is? <laughs> <laughs> yes. While they're doing whatever in this helicopter, Anne is getting her own exciting storyline in which, yeah, basically they just shoot Ed Asner and the Gomer Pyle guy and now are just digging around the house and find a doodle. I watched this twice. I had to back it back up because I thought maybe <laughs> maybe somebody hit me on the head and I'm just a movie reviewing dog and I just kept on going. <laughs> so I rewound the last like 20 minutes of this movie to watch it again. It doesn't help. And no, I didn't get hit on the head. I didn't understand it. But the first time I watched it, I thought that Lee was doodling like he knew something and passing it off. No, it's Ed Asner, the bad guy, was drawing a baseball diamond for fun yeah exactly because he had to go there maybe he needed to remind himself maybe it was a map i'll give him that much (laughs) maybe he needed a map to remind himself except they can't actually use it as a map when they actually go to the seats it's not where it would be yeah they go oh it's dodger stadium they're searching all the seats they told us that they got to keep this stuff cool like someone knows that but i guess (laughs) no one talks in this movie to each other and so yeah it just happens to be like well we searched the stadium couldn't find it let me grab a cold beer oh there it is. <laughs> yeah, it's it couldn't be more anticlimactic, really. And then, like, they, it's just, okay, it's wired up. They just, bloop, they turn it off, and, all right, that one's deactivated. Everyone come back to L.A., you're fine. But there is this chopper spinning up in the sky because the pilot decides he's going to attack our spy. Is that what it was? Yeah, the, the pilot all of a sudden pulls a gun. I think he is working with... Lee. I feel like, oh, he's an inside man, but then all of a sudden he's jumping on Lee and nobody's flying the helicopter. And then it's like, you know, everyone's having motion sickness because they're all just like spinning in the sky. I'm so lost at this point. This movie is nonsense. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they said they're flying to Catalina. I guess that's where Amy's going to hide out Why L.A. die. Is that the Satan bug that was going to go off in L.A.? No, it was just another botulism. No, 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 no. That is the second Satan vial. Yeah, because there's two vials and Ainsley only has one. Oh, wait, wait. So he had one. Uh, I thought there was only one vial of Satan. There's two? There are two. Yeah. And and I don't know <laughs> why. It seems like overkill. If it can kill all life on Earth, why you need to have like the Satan vial like dropping on it while it's going off at Dodger Stadium. Yeah. That's exactly what I was wondering is why does he need to drop it from the helicopter if it's already going to go? And also, might I just add, you don't need to drop it in Los Angeles. You could drop it anywhere. It never expires. (laughs) You could kill everyone. Yeah, they're like, eventually it will kill the most remote Eskimo in (laughs) Aborigine in Australia. Just drop it where you are. Right. And then you guys lived in L.A., How fast do you think all Los Angelinos could evacuate? Uh, As well as they do in this movie. That's what it would look like. (laughs) Everyone hits the 405 and then no one goes anywhere. (laughs) Yes. 
get your pedal bike out and ride to safety. It'll be quicker. But what an exit, man. I just like normally like in any Bond villain, you know, like Goldfinger, he gets sucked out of the airplane or like you want to have something big and dramatic. No, the guy just goes, bye, see ya. And then like (laughs) just jumps. (laughs) Like I'm just going to leap to my death. And then Lee takes control of the helicopter. He's got the vial of the Satan bug. And the end that pops up on the screen like it's over. We save the day. I think that the other guy was counting on the Dodger Stadium going off, and that, like the guy radios and like, no, nope, we got this. We're actually just having dogs sitting here doing nothing. Like, come by, okay. The, the, yeah, it couldn't be more casual and blasé about the end of the world. This was so not the movie experience that I expected to see. So, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend getting the Satan bug, Jacob? I think it's pretty apparent, but let me summarize my thoughts why I'm going to give it a not recommend. It's confusing. That's the biggest problem. I could have got into this story as a James Bond ripoff if I understood the character's motivations and there was good detective work, like not the most random clues. We found a doodle of something that looks like a diamond. Must be a baseball diamond. Like, (laughs) this is bad. Bad writing. And that's ultimately what... Yeah, I love the art design. I love the opening credit animation. Like, that got me excited. And then... I didn't understand anything for about the next two hours for how long this movie runs. So, yeah, it's not just a bad James Bond ripoff. It's a bad film. I don't know. Obligatory Bond reference. Dr. No, say no to this film. Not recommend. Stuart. What I'm appreciating about this series is that it it mutates. Last week we had a film noir and this time, okay, James Bond. That's a way to go with it. I want something different each time and we can talk about all the ways that it has the tropes of a virus movie. But it really is too bad that John Sturgis doesn't care about the tropes of a virus movie or about anything, apparently, because he has let this movie run ramshod full of plot holes and absurdities that any child would stop and ask and want solved. Like, I mean, this is just neglect, right? How do you get the Satan bug? You just let shit fly on the wall. And that's how you contract it. It's just all the shit they throw up on the wall, just stinking up the place. I'm personally sad that they didn't care about the virus. I would have liked to know a little bit of science. It would make this bug more scary if I knew how it actually transmitted itself. But... I mean, we're so beyond that. The idea that it's a magic potion stuck in a beer cooler in Dodger Stadium, and all we should really enjoy is a James Bond adventure. Worth pointing out, by the way, we should be reviewing the new James Bond movie right now. (laughs) It was supposed to come out last weekend. Like, that should be what we're covering, not this. I'm going to use my own pun. No time to digest seems to be the problem (laughs) with this movie. They keep saying that all that matters is the vial. You gotta get the vial. Just follow the vial. And there's actually a line in the movie. The how is not important. It's the who and the why that counts. (laughs) If only. Well, I think that the screenwriter certainly embraced the the how isn't important, but he forgot that the who and why are important. None of it matters in this film. There is no level on which I can recommend this. This isn't so bad it's good. This isn't get stoned and watch it good. This is a painful experience if you're trying to make sense of what's going on because it can't be done. It's trying to untangle the tightest knot, so not recommend. Is there a James Bond movie that's worse? I can't think of one. I mean, maybe that first Casino Royale, the one with Woody Allen. That's not a real one. <laughs> At least they knew that that was supposed to be trying to be funny. Like, they're playing this straight. 
They're trying to tell you we should be terrified of this Satan bug, and then they're doing 1967 Casino Royale. And I just, uh, my mind can't wrap around it. It doesn't even have, like, the sex appeal of a Bond movie. You don't think Anne's a good Bond girl? I don't. I think that she's way too boring. I mean, I think that the one with Denise Richards, like all of them, there's not a a legitimate Bond movie. You want Christmas Jones back? That is bad. Yes. Like, there's not a worse Bond movie than this. I was thinking The World Is Not Enough is pretty bad, but at least I can laugh at it. Never Say Never Again was my least favorite, and I still think James Bond playing video games is better than this movie. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. There's no Bond movie that hurts this much to think about yeah treat it like plague avoid it we're gonna move on if we can't get no time to die we're gonna just skip up to the 70s and i think really where the science thriller you know i keep saying i wanted science i wanted to know about the bug well we need michael crichton to do that he is the doctor that cares about the science that wrote the andromeda strain in the late 60s it gets made into a movie in 1971 and we're covering it next week But if you want a movie that tries for something similar but funny, check out our patron feed this Friday. Yeah, uh, 60s Paranoia. It's a theme this week, and this is the one that looked at the end of the world and laughed about it. Stanley Kubrick, Peter Sellers, a bonafide classic, registered at the National Registry of Films. You got to see it. And yeah, if you got free time, I think we all do these days, dig it up. I know I haven't watched it in many a decade and look forward to it. Join us Friday for that. You can find the details at nowplayingpatron.com. We're coming up on 40 bonus shows for a donation of $10 per month. I mean, that you donate $10, you just get a plethora of previous bonus shows and then a new one every single month. So like Stuart said, if you have some free time, you probably do. This would be, if you don't sleep, more than two straight days of bonus podcasts by becoming a $10 patron. And if you become 25 or 50, even more shows for you. So thank you for your support. Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next time, we hope you stay happy and healthy. Los Angeles will be my epitaph. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Satisfied? Yes. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. I have what you're looking for. Also at our site, you can find hundreds of other movie reviews, including Star Wars, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Independence Day, The Avengers Films, Back to the Future, Batman, Superman, The Fast and the Furious, and more. We'll meet you there, Lee. Take it nice and easy. Now Playing Podcast is a show without any sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to keep Now Playing operating. $10,000 should uh, cover your expenses. I'm afraid not. You can donate to the show and, as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. Over 150 bonus movie reviews are available to choose from on the Now Playing Podbean page, including Alien, Night of the Living Dead, Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Lord of the Rings, Psycho, Troll, and more. Cash? Now. Find a full list of available bonus shows at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. It's marvelous, almost a hideaway. You can also join the Now Playing Patron campaign through our Podbean site. 
Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month, plus even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. Find the details on our website. This is vitally important. You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. Get everybody in here. Everyone else connected with this place. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. The how is not important. It's the who and the why. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Lunatic Fringe, Crank with Resources. Associate produced by Jason Latham. I guess I underestimated you. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. Well, psychotics don't generally engage in teamwork. Now Playing credits read by Brock. It was phoned in last night. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. In the past, you've been quite outspoken. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. Keep your speeches and moralities for your counsel. This is a business deal. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. How worried are they? Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Venganza Media Incorporated. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2020, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Good night, Regan. See you Monday. And people in our daily lives, it should be said, it's a very common practice now, but it is funny to think that a bioweapon of the 1960s is now an everyday, like, blemish treatment. Yes, even some podcasters have considered it. <laughs> Who, I'll, I'll never tell. On this show? <laughs> this podcast? <laughs> yeah, it'd be great if I ever see you, maybe one day, Arnie, <laughs> when I can leave my house. I'll compliment. <laughs>